morning, church. For those of you that are visiting today, my name is Mark Atherton. I'm the senior pastor here at Xenia Nazarene, and the church board has granted me a 12-week sabbatical. During that time, I've chosen several people to be guest speakers, and today, Brandon Hancock will fill the board. Brandon Hancock is no stranger to this church. He was the worship pastor here for seven years, but even before then, you knew him as Garnet Beams, grandson and the son of Mike and Becky Hancock. He is now the Associate Professor of Practical Theology and Worship at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. So can you give a great welcome home reception to Dr. Brandon Hancock? Thanks. I thought for sure he'd use that video to embarrass me somehow, but he didn't. Uh, this is my wife, Gloria. You should give her an even more warm welcome than me, I'm sure. Most people like Gloria more than they like me, understandably. And uh, yeah, it's just a privilege to be with you. Um, since I'm a worship guy, I thought I would just exercise prerogative to teach you a new song, if that's okay. Um, and uh, since Clay asked us to sing for you, and I, I feel like it, it needs some context, but it's, it's cool the way the Holy Spirit works when, you know, you have all these different preachers every week, and Clay's planning songs, and I'm writing a sermon, and, uh, you know, he didn't know what I'm going to say until this morning or whatever, but the way that that song just leads into what the Lord has impressed upon me to preach about and to what we're about to sing about, the, the line that they sang there in that last verse about, uh, the day he comes in glory to reveal the fullness of his reign, our hearts will bow before the sound of Jesus' name. And the, the song that we want to teach you and, and have you participate in with us a little bit um, is a, has a kind of call and response thing. When I teach worship, I talk a lot about how worship is a rhythm of revelation and response, that God acts, God speaks, God reveals, and we respond in worship. Uh, it doesn't start with us, it starts with God. And um, and so this song kind of embodies that with this call and response thing. You'll see what I mean in a minute. But it's drawn, a lot of the lyrics are drawn from Revelation chapter 5, um, where we uh, encounter the Lamb. And let me just read some of this to you. Uh, the, John, the revelator, writes that, about his vision, and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writings on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, we, I could have preached a whole sermon about the scroll and stuff, and if you want a homework assignment from the professor, you can dig into that this week about what the scroll is all about. Um, but I'll go on. As I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open it, open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals." And then, he writes, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain or slaughtered, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, worthy you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign on the earth. 
And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands, and they encircled the throne. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, that's everything basically, right? Saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And they all said, amen. Now that's a vision, that's a little glimpse of what's coming in the end when Jesus returns on the last day. And we should be excited about that, but we live in this kind of time that remains, and sometimes it doesn't always feel like we can see that kingdom coming, uh, and this song kind of expresses that, so we'll give it a try and see if you can uh, respond to these questions. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. And do you feel the shadows deepen? We, we do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. And is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be a light within our midst? It is. And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone on the sleigh Is he worthy Is he worthy Of all blessing and honor and glory Is he worthy of this He is Does the Father truly he does. Does the Spirit dwell among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those He loves? He does. And does our God intend to dwell again with us? Slave from every people and tribe 
place to God to reign with the sun. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? and asked if I would read some scripture this morning before he he preaches. This is taken from John 18. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. They took this place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And and may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Uh, May he speak to us through these moments and begin it with me, Lord. We love you. Praise this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a privilege to be back with you today. And uh, let me just get this out of the way, all right? Mark Atherton was my teacher for preaching class when I was preparing for ordination. So if you don't like how I preach, you just, when he gets back, you blame him. (laughs) And because I know he's going to be listening to see if I'm like doing the things he taught me to do, right? But you have a great preacher. And uh, it was, I told him the Sunday that we were here for the centennial uh, in the fall, how much, uh, how much I miss his preaching. And uh, I hope you know how blessed you are with him as your leader and with your staff. Thank you to Clay and the worship team and um, to the Holy Spirit for bringing this all together. Have you ever dealt with unmet expectations? Unmet expectations? Ever? Like that can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? When something exceeds our expectations, like that's a pleasant surprise, right? It's like we don't, we don't usually feel too bad about that. But when something 
fails to meet our expectations, that's when we have disappointment, yeah? Um, but we're pretty, you know, and as human beings, we can be fairly pessimistic at, time, at times, and so our expectations sometimes can be negative. Um, I, does anybody remember Y2K, all the fear around Y2K, right? Some of you are too young to, you were like not even born, you don't know what I'm talking about, but when it was going to turn the, January 1st, 0101 slash 00, right? Everybody was panicked about the, like the world was just going to end, you know, the computers wouldn't be able to deal with the zero, zero date or something and the power grid would fail and the internet would crash and we would, and so I won't, I won't ask for a show of hands to see which of you were like stockpiling non-perishables and preparing for the zombie apocalypse and, you know, guns and bullets and, you know, get like gasoline, getting ready, right? Getting ready. But then like we woke up on January 1st on the morning of, and it just kind of nothing happened, right? Just went about our business. Unmet expectations. Or like when your pastor goes on sabbatical and he's like, we're going to bring in all these great preachers and you show up this morning and you're ready for a profound preacher whose powerful proclamation is going to be punctuated with points that all begin with the letter P. And then you're like, that's the old music dude. What He can't. What is he doing? <laughs> yes, I'm a music dude. And yes, I'm old. I'm getting old. It'll be 40 next month. Um, so sorry if that was your expectation and... We'll see how we meet it. But when in the text that Gloria read, we kind of enter into the story of Jesus' life in the Gospel of John. I've been hanging out with this text since November and, uh, and, and kind of developing some uh, thoughts around it. It's been working on me more than me working on it, if you know what I mean, when you really uh, spend time with the Word. And, um, and so we pick up in this kind of weird spot in the life of Jesus where he's been dragged before Pilate, he's on trial, Um, he's been betrayed by one of his best friends, he's been handed over his own religious people, right, like his district superintendent and stuff, and general superintendents, like they're dragging him in front of the secular authorities, in front of the state, hand him over to Rome, and they want him dead, and so we have to ask why, why do they want him dead? I don't want to assume that like where we're jumping in on the story makes sense to everybody. So I'm just going to back up real quick and give you a little overview. If we go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the second chapter, we find Jesus coming into the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers. Do you know this story? Right? And so he's ticked off because these people are in there selling sacrificial animals to people. They're exploiting the religious devotion of the people for profit, and they're selling them sacrificial animals that'll meet the holiness codes and they're making money off of it. So Jesus comes in, he turns over their tables, he drives them out, he gets, makes a whip and he like sets all the animals free. And so it's chaos in the temple. So they're not happy about that, right? The religious leaders aren't. Um, And then he says this crazy thing about like, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days, which is like, probably is like if somebody called a bomb threat in or something in our day, right? I mean, that's like, they didn't know what he was talking about. The gospel writer says, you know, they didn't know he was talking about his, the temple of his body. But to them, they were like, what? He's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. So they're ticked, right? And then he goes on, if we get, move on through the chapters of the Gospel of John, he, he's healing people even on the Sabbath. So they have this holiness code that you don't do certain kinds of work on the Sabbath. And so he's out there healing people and he's breaking the Sabbath. And so they're upset about that. And then we get to John 6 and he's drawn this huge crowd. Everywhere he goes, he's, he's preaching, he's attracting followers. He's on the hillside, he's preaching to this whole village, like 5,000 people, right, on the hillside. And uh, this little boy has his lunch, you know this story, right? And he takes the, the bread and the fish, 
and he feeds the whole village with that guy's lunch. And then he, he shifts gears. They won't leave. And he says, you know, you, you're hanging around because I fed your bellies. But actually, the, the bread that you really need is my body. What? And, uh, and he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And they're like, what are you talking about, man? Like, you're God's gift to us or something? What is that, right? And, he, and then they don't get what he's talking about. He says, I'm the living bread. If you, want to, if you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And at this point, they're not just mad. They're like, gonna vomit. Because, like, Jews don't eat certain kinds of flesh, right? And, they, and one of those is human flesh. Like, they don't eat human flesh, right? Um, that's on the list of things we don't eat. And they don't drink blood. And he says, my, ble- my blood is... You, you drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they're like, ooh, what are you talking about, man? You're, this is crazy talk. And then, to make it even worse, he, like, disses one of their most foundational stories from, from their faith when, the, when they were, what, what do the kids call it now, throwing shade? He throws shade at the, at the story of the, Jew, the Israelites in the wilderness wandering when they ate manna that came down from heaven. Remember that? Magic bread comes from heaven and they eat it and... And they survive these wilderness wanderings because God sends manna from heaven. And Jesus says, you know, there was bread that came down from heaven before. They called it manna. Your ancestors all ate it, right? Where are they now? Oh, they're dead. But if you, if you want eternal life, eat my flesh. Drink my, and, and they're like, don't talk about my great, 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 great grandma like that. That's who do you think you are? But he keeps attracting more followers, and the religious authorities are really ticked off. And these authorities are even more concerned because these followers believe that he's the Messiah, right? When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus Messiah. And the Messiah was this promised one that Yahweh said would come to rule to be the king of the Jews, to be the ruler who would give the boot to imperial rule. He'd kick the Romans out. He'd reunify the scattered tribes of Israel and establish them as a holy nation over all the nations of the earth. That this Messiah that they were expecting, that they were waiting for, would come and he would prove that their God is the one true God. And he would privilege their religion over all all these other imposter religions, right? And restore them to cultural dominance. And he'd probably give them like free health care or at least a hat that says make Israel great again or something like that. Like that's what he would, that's what they were expecting. The Messiah. That's all they can imagine, and all they can imagine is that this Messiah, whoever he is, whenever he shows up, that he'll do this, he'll establish his reign, he'll re- re-establish their cultural dominance, their religious superiority, he'll do it by force. That's what they're convinced of, right? That's what they expect. And it's because they've seen this in their own history. Everybody who's always in power, it gets there by force, right? The Egyptians pull, took them into slavery because they had armies and they had, Right? And then when God delivers them, God commands authority over nature to actually get them out of Egypt, right? That's part of their story. That's actually the part of the story they're remembering during this very time where Jesus is on trial because it's the Passover, right? That's where they're at, and they're remembering that story. Um, they've seen it in their own time of their kings, that they, when they had kings and they had armies, that they got to rule. And then they've seen it with the rise of the Roman Empire, that Rome came to dominance by force. And so they think that this is how kingdoms are established. And they're like us. They're like Their imaginations are limited by what they can see and what they've experienced. 
They're looking for a king like all the other kings that they've ever seen. Kings have, you know, money, right? Power. This is kind of how it works. Like the king with the most money has the most soldiers. He can provide them with the best weapons. Then when there's a fight, they kill more of the other guys' soldiers, and then they have, right? You know how this works. And then they get more land, and they get more money, and they conscript all the soldiers that are left standing from the other side, and they have more soldiers, and then they have more power. This is how it works. This is how kingdoms happen, how they're established, how kings rule. They come to power by force. But throughout the Gospels, and not just the Gospel of John, but throughout all the Gospels, we see these two things in the life of ministry in Jesus that are always paired up, always go hand in hand. We read over and over that Jesus goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people, healing bodies. And you see this linked up over and over. Find you know, very few examples, see if you can find one, where it doesn't, where they don't go hand in hand. He went around proclaiming the kingdom and healing people's bodies, casting out demons, healing the lame, restoring sight to the blind. His kingdom is established not by killing, but by healing. Instead of a Messiah leading a military rebellion like they expect, they get things like this. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted. You know, let the little children come to me. And he touches lepers and bleeding women. And he heals blind people and lame people. He's broken, useless people, right? He hangs out with not the politically influential Jewish leaders, the ones who drag him before Pilate. He doesn't hang out with them. He hangs out with prostitutes, tax collectors, lowly fishermen. Like, that's his crew. Outcasts, down and outs, losers, right? That, from the standpoint of authority. And what's up with this kingdom he keeps talking about? He, compared, he says it's like a mustard seed. And it's like yeast that leavens the dough and it belongs to little children and it will be inherited by the poor. Like is, this is his kingdom. And so they're frustrated and they're disappointed and they're angry. They believe that this guy was the Messiah. They're ready for a fight. And they get this instead. It's kind of, it seems like false advertising, right? So my friend Jordan, he, uh, he posted this picture on Facebook not long ago. And he, he was, this isn't Jordan. This is an advertisement, all right? So he ordered this Batman ha Halloween costume. And he was really excited about it. And then when it came, it looked like this. And <laughs> <laughs> kind of a letdown, right? And I don't know why, but if you Google false advertising, you do like a Google image search, like everything is food related. So like I have a few of those as well. So like when you just get the one little smear of icing on your pop, like a little bit of colored dust on there or the, yeah, the Cincinnati chili, like, man, that looks so good on the box. I want to go have Skyline right now. And then you take that out of the microwave and yeah, like gonna vomit, right? And then the, the pizza, I love this. Just look at it for a minute. <laughs> Disappointing when you pull that out of the box. Uh, yeah, just move on from that one before I hurl. And then McDonald's, since Pastor Mark loves his McDonald's. Like, McDonald's is the worst. Like, the actual Big Mac rotated to the most attractive angle is, you know. False advertising. We can relate to disappointment, right? We can relate to feeling like we crushed that job interview, right? And then 
we regret to inform you. Or like all the hopes and dreams that we have for our children and what they'll become, but they have their own free will and they make decisions and they end up and our expectations are in the gutter. Right, mom and dad? Um, or the, the marriage that you fought so hard to save and despite your best efforts. And people fail us. They let us down. We fail ourselves. And it hurts. We're disappointed. Jesus' followers trusted him. And then they find him here in handcuffs, bent over the hood of a police car, having been slapped around and dragged in before the judge. This is that Messiah that we were waiting for. Pathetic. This is not the king that we ordered. This is not how kingdoms are established. Take this guy away. Give us that bandit Barabbas. It's a long shot, but he was a rebel, an insurrectionist. Maybe he'll lead us in the uprising that we're all waiting for. I heard it said recently that hell is God giving us what we ask for. <laughs> and so we pick up in chapter 19 of John, just after where Gloria left off. And Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. And once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for charge against this man. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted... We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. It's kind of unexpected that Pilate would show up in the Apostles' Creed. Have you ever thought how weird that is? I don't know how often y'all say the Apostles' Creed. It's only a seldom thing we do at my church. But in the Apostles' Creed, there's only two people besides the Father, the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that get mentioned in the Creed. One is Pilate. Who's the other one? Pop quiz. Virgin Mary. Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Right? Like, why does Pilate get mentioned in the Creed? That's kind of weird. Uh, kind of weird legacy. His family's probably not real proud of that. Um, and some, I've, some people say that 
it's important because it kind of it historically situates these events in the life of Jesus, right? This happened under the rule of this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, in this particular region. The emperor was Tiberius, but Pilate gets the mention. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. So it's, it's a historical thing that really took place in history. That is important, right, to realize this isn't just some myth. Like, it happened in history. Jesus, like, really was a man who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was a historical figure. Um, other people say that in Pilate and Mary, I think this is kind of interesting to think about, we get sort of the two exemplars of the, of the human responses to Jesus, like the two extremes. Mary, with her devotion, her acceptance, the first disciple, right, she, she represents us who accept Christ, and Pilate represents those who reject Christ on the other end of the spectrum, those who uh, reject him and under uh, under Pilate he suffered, and so that's the representative. But I think there's another dynamic with Pilate's mention in the Apostles' Creed. Um, by bringing Pilate up in the Apostles' Creed, politics comes crashing into our confession of faith in a way that we can't really avoid, and we can't avoid it if we take this story seriously that we've been reading and unpacking here. It's, it's a political drama. It's like Jesus and Pilate. I mean, like if Aaron Sorkin wrote this in The West Wing, it would just be like, it's, this is tense drama. This is good stuff. It's a political drama. All this talk of kings and kingdoms is political. I know it's different from our politics because we don't have kings, right? We elect our leaders. But being a king, if Jesus is the king of the Jews, he doesn't have to stand trial before anybody. Kings don't get judged by a jury of their peers. They don't have any peers, right? Anybody seen The Lion King? Simba's, I just can't wait to be king. Why? No no one's saying do this. No one's saying be there, right? Nobody tells me what to do when I'm the king. That's part of being a king. So this is political. All this talk of kingdoms and kings and king of the Jews and Messiah, these are political things. Politics comes crashing in. I, I know I should know better than to talk about politics around here. Um, I know you aren't used to pastors who ever do say anything political on... <laughs> Sorry. But so Jesus is here before Pilate, and even in these moments where he's like not responding to the inquiry, right? Pilate is questioning him and judging him. And even in his silence... It seems to me that he's, he is saying something and doing something. And this is, these are my words, but I'm just kind of imagining that as Jesus stands there, he's kind of saying, look, I know you're looking for a mighty king, a king with power and with servants who will fight to protect me, and I'm not that kind of king. I'm a king who heals rather than harms to prove my strength. I'm a king who lays down power. I don't have servants. I'm a king who humbles himself and takes the form of a servant, right? A king who empties himself, the words of Paul to the Philippians. My kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that you think you know. My kingdom is a kingdom where the least are the greatest and where you have to be like a child. You have to be born again to get in. It's like Jesus is standing there before Pilate and just by his very presence and witness, he's saying, the truth is your kingdoms are all a sham, and your power is a sham, and your armies are a sham, because they're all based on violence and the threat of force that keeps people weak and afraid. 
that keeps people divided against each other and keeps sick people sick and poor people poor and hopeless people hopeless. But the truth is that's not real power. Real power is healing the sick and lifting up the weak and afraid. Real power is that kid giving his lunch and seeing God use it to feed a whole village. Real power is sitting down at the table and breaking bread with enemies and with friends who like five minutes ago acted like they don't, don't know who you are and who last night sold you out for a bag of money. It's interesting to me how Pilate thinks he's the one doing the judging here, and it seems to me like he's really the one being judged. His kind of power is what's being judged by Jesus in these moments. And the more time I spend trying to kind of get into this text, the more I feel judged, the more I feel like I fit in the role of Pilate or those Jewish leaders that are looking for a different kind of king. Are we being judged when we lose sight of the kind of king that Jesus is, the kind of kingdom that he reigns over, the kind of kingdom that we pray would come on earth as it is in heaven? Mark taught me to be a good news preacher, and that's kind of a heavy thought. But there's good news in this text, and it's this, that that kingdom that Jesus established and for which we wait we're invited to be citizens of it now, right? That's good news. Like he wants us to live as citizens of that kingdom and to align our view and our lives with his heart, with his politics, with his lordship. That's really good news. And so I wonder this morning, I I know that I do, that if some of us need a realignment of our imaginations this morning, if there's something that we need to repent of, holiness people still need a, a change of, of mind, of perspective. That's all repentance means. Is metanoia is the biblical word. It just means a change of mind. Sometimes we need a checkup and a change of mind to be realigned to the heart of God. Um, again, we sang about it this morning, the firm foundation that we can build our life on. And the heart of God that wants to flow through us as we love others. And we get to kind of embody that as well every week here at Zenia Naz um, when we come to the Lord's table. Every service, uh, for the most part, as far as I know, you still have an opportunity to respond by coming to the table and receiving these symbols of Christ's body and shed blood. These elements that are reminders to us, but are also means of grace to us that we take into our bodies and somehow God uses it to form us more into the likeness of Christ. These symbols of the slaughtered lamb who has the power to open the scroll, that's the mascot of our kingdom, the slaughtered lamb, right? At Indiana Wesleyan, we have a mascot that's the wildcats, right? Like mascots are usually like fierce, right? The mascot of our kingdom is a slaughtered lamb, broken body, shed blood. That's the power that he represents and that is available to us. I'm so encouraged and excited about the fact that we can come to the Lord's table. Again, this is good news, that we can come and we can, in this act, um, we often 
focus on it and talk about it as a way of proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. And it, it's that. It's absolutely uh, uh, the, the symbolism of the cross is always at the forefront of what we're doing at the table. But you know what it also is? It's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. We get this little glimpse. We get this little taste of the marriage supper of the Lamb in this communion feast as well. And so the invitation that I want to give to you this morning as you come is that you would just, what, how, I don't know how this is landing with a room this size and this many people, what it is, what disappointments in your life that you may need to hand over to God so that you can take your next steps with him, what, whatever um, ways that this might be working on your heart. But I think in this act, in this response, that we can come forward and just ask the Lord to realign our vision, our imagination, our hearts, and our minds with his kingdom And whatever it might be in your life that's getting in the way of that, just give it to him this morning in this act of response. The altars, I don't have to open them to let you come and pray, but before you receive or after you receive, if you need to pray and you just need to ask the Lord to realign your vision in some way or turn over some part of your life that that you're holding back, take an opportunity to do that. This is important, and uh, it's our call as Christians to live as witness and as citizens of his kingdom and his power. Um, As the servers begin to prepare, I'm just reminded that, again, right before these events that we've been hearing about in John 18 and 19, on the night when Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he took off his outer robe and he knelt and he washed the feet of his disciples. And he ate a meal with them, knowing what was coming. He ate a meal with them. And after supper, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup, gave thanks to the Lord. And he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning we obey that command. We recall his passion, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and we look for the coming of his kingdom. And in this act, we're made one with him and with one another. We offer these symbols, but we offer ourselves as single, holy, living sacrifices to him. And so hear us, merciful Father, and send your Holy Spirit upon us and upon this bread and the cup that overshadowed by his life-giving power, they may be for us the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that we may be kindled with the fire of your love and renewed for the service of your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.